With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the 89th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thanks to all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you, and thank you for listening and for sending me all those messages. I really do enjoy getting them. I hope you are all doing well. My July Privacy Professor Tips message was published on June 29th. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2005 and have been archiving them since 2007, and I provide these Uh, in an effort to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues and to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. I do know how hard it is to get budget and funding for that, so please use them. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. We are now also providing free ebooks and awareness videos through our privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those from privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Today is a really long overdue next episode in my series on encryption and uh, really thinking again about doing this and the continued fight by lawmakers, the Department of Justice, FBI, and law enforcement to compel tech companies to not only create what truly is weak encryption so that they can get access to encrypted files and encrypted transmissions, this despite their huge recent victories against criminals that use encryption for their communications that, uh, you know, they did it without having those back doors in place. So I want to give this as a frame of reference, I guess, to help Uh, lead into our discussion. So the first case in point happened on June 7th. The Department of Justice announced then that it had seized 63.7 bitcoins that were valued at approximately $2.3 million. 
And those funds allegedly represented a large portion of the May 8th ransom payment to individuals in the dark side group. They were the ones that targeted Colonial Pipeline uh, with ransomware, and it resulted in critical infrastructure being taken out of operation for several days. So when you think about this, how did the FBI seize back that Bitcoin, which is a form of cryptocurrency? Well, the DOJ reported that the FBI was in possession of the private key to unlock a Bitcoin wallet that had received most of those funds. However, it was not explained how the FBI gained access to that key. And then the second case in point happened the very next day, or it was announced next day. The DOJ announced 500 plus arrests that took place throughout a a worldwide two-day takedown. Now, the FBI operated its own encrypted device company, and they called it ANOM, A-N-O-M, and it was subsequently used by criminal groups worldwide. And the criminals using this sold more than 12,000 ANOM encrypted devices and services to more than 300 criminal syndicates operating in more than 100 countries. I mean, it was really mind-blowing when you think about it. So then the the criminal users unknowingly promoted and communicated that system while the FBI agents recorded more than 27 million messages between the crook users that were going on around the world who then had their criminal discussions reviewed, recorded, and translated by the FBI, and then the criminals were arrested. So here are two very recent cases where the FBI did not need mainstream encryption to have back doors to take out a lot of crooks. But yet we're still hearing a lot of arguments uh, urging tech companies to figure out how to do that securely to give them back doors into encryption to allow police access to those communications with a warrant when they think it's necessary. Now, they say this despite decades of explanations from technology experts for why this is a bad idea and how it probably won't catch a lot of crooks because the crooks will probably go ahead and use strong encryption they get elsewhere, but also the fact that it probably will result in more privacy breaches. There's so much involved with all of these things, and I'm so happy to have on my show today one of the foremost experts for this topic, Dr. Stephen Belevin, the author of Thinking Security and co-author of Firewalls and Internet Security, Repelling the Wily Hacker. Dr. Belevin holds many patents on cryptographic and network protocols. Dr. Belevin served on many National Research Council study committees. Dr. Belevin is the Percy K. and Vita L. W. Hudson Professor of Computer Science at Columbia University, a member of the Cybersecurity and Privacy Center of the university's Data Science Institute, and an affiliate faculty member at Columbia Law School. 
Dr. Melvin does research on security and privacy and on related public policy issues. And he also is working on the history of cryptography. And there's so much more to know about Dr. Belovin. So go check out my VA uh, Voice America website for my show and you'll see more there. I also had the really great pleasure on June 8th of this year of being on a roundtable discussion with Dr. Belovin. It was sponsored by the ACM USTPC. It's titled The Politics and Policy of Necessity Mega Hacks and the Future of U.S. Cybersecurity. Those of you listening, you can see a recording of that roundtable discussion. It's an hour and a half. It's available in multiple locations online. Just use your, your favorite search engine to find it. Dr. Belvin, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. My pleasure. My pleasure. Glad to be Glad here. To be here. Well, uh, I'm I'm have so many questions and I know we I'm not going to get to all of them but I wanted to start out with all of you know recent news about encryption because I think that really helps to start the listeners to start thinking about these issues and one news item that I thought was very interesting was uh, the news that a backdoor in a mobile phone encryption algorithm from the 1990s not only still exists, but that it's still actually being used uh, reportedly within some of the new uh, phones, the GEA1 and GEA2 encryption algorithms. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about um, this, this, what's considered to be a weak encryption backdoor um, is it a privacy threat to those using the phones? Are you concerned about the privacy implications? Well, there's a very curious thing about those algorithms. If police want to wiretap a phone call, even a mobile phone call, they don't need to break encryption. Your mobile phone, it's decrypted over the air from your phone to the base station. After that, it's just an ordinary phone call. Mm-hmm. So they can just get a warrant and tap it uh, once it reaches the landline. On the other hand, intelligence agencies are listening over the air because if they're in another country, they can't get a warrant. Mm. So if there was a backdoor put in, it's to the benefit of intelligence agencies most likely, not police. So if someone has um, a phone and they're wondering about this, should they be concerned? Well, are you being targeted by an intelligence agency? Are you likely to be? Uh, you know, my first question is always about security and privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you trying to protect and against whom? And if an intelligence agency is not in your threat model, then don't worry about that. If law enforcement is not in your threat model, then don't worry about it. You know, of course, a lot depends on what country you're in, whether or not you think that the uh, law enforcement that Security services follow the law. If you are concerned, use something that's end-to-end encrypted, like Signal mm-hmm. or Apple's uh, Apple's FaceTime to iPhones. Uh, because remember, you're, even if EA one was EA two were the strongest possible algorithms, the uh, call is in the clear once it reaches the landline portion of the call. Mm-hmm. The the phone companies' trunks and so on. 
So if you're really concerned about the privacy, use something that's end-to-end encrypted. Otherwise, who's your enemy? What are they doing? Yeah, very good points. Uh, I think a lot of people read this news and thought, oh, no, I'm sending, you know, illicit photos to my girlfriend or boyfriend. Is is the government going to get that? So if they are, what you're saying is <laughs> unless they're targeted, probably there's no worry uh, from from that threat. Now, there might be other threats. Uh, well, again, most websites oh. these days use TLS. Mm-hmm. So when you even though the over-the-air portion is in the clear, all you're going to see is the HTTPS traffic to the website we are uploading the phone, uh, the pictures, or what have you. So, again, what's your enemy? What can they do? How are you sending this stuff? Yeah. Signal is very strong. FaceTime, iMessage is very strong. So are the things not so much. Very good advice. Now, how about this big worldwide takedown that I talked about in the lead-in? I'm sure you know that you're probably pretty well uh, informed about it, much more than uh, than I provided at the beginning. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about how they took down uh, the the criminals and that was a lot of criminals with their own solution that they sold to the criminals and the criminals knowingly took it and used it. It was an interesting stunt. You know, you could call it a supply chain attack, the same type that uh, we worried about when it was done to American uh, companies and government agencies with Solar Wind was being marketed to, uh, to criminals. It's not the first time. There was a similar one uh, in Europe, mostly in Europe, where the Dutch intelligence agency was providing an encrypted phone service to, to the criminals. Uh, you know, end-to-end encryption means it's encrypted between the endpoints, but doesn't say what happens once it reaches those endpoints. At that point, it's in the clear, and you don't know what's happening then. You've got to trust your endpoint, whether it's your phone, your computer, what have you. So what they did, though, I mean, for, gosh, decades or even centuries, the way governments have tried to get intelligence is to embed one way, is to embed with, I guess you could say, the enemy, right? Become part of their group or find a way to communicate. And it it seems like that is still uh, an effective way to do it instead of trying to weaken encryption to just be able to get it access to everything? There's a saying I've used for years, and others formulated slightly differently. You don't go through strong security, you go around it. Mm-hmm. In this case, the over-the-air, over-the-wire encryption is very strong, so you go around it. You mm-hmm. do something to the endpoint. Hack the endpoint, supply a pre-compromised endpoint, and don't worry about the encryption. Now, I want to talk about the FBI also having a key to the Bitcoin and getting back some of that ransom that was paid. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, any lessons regarding cryptocurrency regarding that situation? Okay, so there are two very different points. The first is that Bitcoin is not anonymous, it's pseudonymous. The address of your so-called wallet, this long, crazy string of letters and digits, is not, it's 
always you. It's not anonymous. And transactions can be tracked from wallet to wallet. And this has been known since Bitcoin was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, they were. Uh, it's just that it's been able to be weaponized. There are companies that make a business out of tracing transactions on the blockchain. And the FBI just found out where these Bitcoins went. The second question is, once you know which wallet has received the money, how do you get at it? And that requires the private key. Now, the FBI has not told us how they got the private key. They may never tell us how they got the private key. It could have been they hacked the uh, criminal group to steal it that way. Mm. Some people store their Bitcoins in wallets, so-called wallets, held by their uh, exchange, in which case, with the cooperation of the exchange, voluntary or after a court order or something, the FBI could have gotten the uh, uh, key that way, or the key could have been derived from a password which the FBI guessed. There are lots of possibilities they haven't told us. I don't know that they're likely to tell us unless unless it somehow comes up in in trial, but they may not have to. You know, mm. The key is self-authenticating. If it decrypts things properly, it's valid. You don't have to show how you got it in that sense, unless someone can show that it was done by legally improper means. Right, right. I think there's a lot of really great points there that uh, have not come out that I've seen in different published reports about that. Um, go ahead. Well, the funniest one is that for them to challenge Mm -hmm. The FBI and the, and the seizure of the funds, they'd have to admit that the funds were theirs. Yeah. It's already traced to them as proceeds of a criminal enterprise that would put them in a very dubious position. <laughs> so I don't know that that's likely to happen ever. Right, right. Yeah. Very interesting situation. Sounds like a movie. Uh, it does. <laughs> movie plot. You know, there's a lot of podcasts and discussions uh, on LinkedIn uh, that I follow from other information security uh, folks. And it, it's really, it, it puzzles me when I hear so many folks who are in information security actually uh, promoting backdoors in, um, in encryption. And I want to read you just a, a couple or or so uh, actual statements I heard on some of these podcasts So and, and get your reaction to them. So one of them, I heard the person who is has been in information security for a very long time, he said governments need to gain access to information pursuant to a legal court order, and this trumps anyone's right to privacy, and it is absolutely necessary to enforce the law, and that's why companies should not be able to produce warrant-proof technologies. What do you think of that? Well, a couple of things. <laughs> First, from a legal history perspective, the, war the, the warrant provision in the U.S. Fourth Amendment was not a right to the government to uh, gain access to information. It was a limitation. Mm. It was a response to the so-called general warrants 
that uh, King George's soldiers would use to get go into colonists' houses and so on. So the warrant is a restriction. It's not a right. Mm. Uh, so warrant-proof encryption in that sense doesn't make legal and historical sense. <laughs> the second point is that the point of strong encryption is not to keep out government access, it's to keep out everyone else. And the underlying question is, is it possible to produce this, call it a back door, call it exceptional access, call it a golden key, call it what you will. The goal is not so much to keep out the government, it's to keep out everyone else. And most cryptographers feel that trying to create this exceptional access mechanism runs a very high risk of weakening the encryption system, fatally weakening the encryption system. And encryption is one of the few really strong, really well-working security mechanisms that we have on the internet. Do we really want to weaken it? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. I mean, it seems like it would lead to a lot more privacy breaches, and we already have a lot of privacy breaches the way it is. It's it's worse than that. The average criminal probably cannot break encryption uh, unless it's unless it's extraordinarily weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but foreign intelligence agencies can, and so when you weaken encryption. You're creating an opening for the most sophisticated adversaries that there are. Mm. Which is a very um, grave situation uh, to yeah. be in for, uh, for many types of information. Although some years ago I was talking to someone who used to be a, a federal prosecutor, and she said that she was really terrified of some of the big drug gangs. Because they had the money and the willingness to use violence to get into whatever facilities the government was going to use to get access, whether extort their way in or threaten their way in or blackmail their way in. Mm -hmm. And she thought that these gangs would be able to abuse these mechanisms, the lawful mechanisms. Yes, that makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, if you can threaten someone's life or their family members' lives uh, in order to get access, uh, they'll do it, right? They do much worse. Exactly, exactly. And they had the resources. Yes, that's the scary thing. Um, what, I want to give you one more quote and that I heard, and then we have about four minutes until we go to break. But this one kind of blew my mind. Again, these are this is from podcasts that information security um, folks are, are doing. So here's another one. Law enforcement has no intention to undermine encryption. They are accountable to judges and juries, Law enforcement needs outweigh individual privacy concerns, but technology companies don't care. This next part is the the statement that kind of blew my mind. They do not have a right to create a tool to support absolute privacy. Well, 
right, you know, under the, as far as anyone knows, uh, the U.S. Constitution, they have the legal right to do that. Uh, whether they have uh, the moral right, whether there should be a law is an interesting question. There are, there is, some people will say that the ability to write code is protected by the First Amendment. I don't know that I would go that far. It's an argument that has some support from courts. But again, the issue is not so much keeping out authorized law enforcement, although, you know, there have been corrupt cops, corrupt prosecutors, and so on. It's do we want to weaken the technology and leave the doors open to others? This is not a door. There's no technical way to say this is a good person trying to get in. Mm -hmm. We can't do that technically. And if we weaken it, who knows what's going to happen? You know, the technical history of attempts to create these mechanisms is one of failures unanticipated by the designers i'll tell one brief one brief story someone was going around the country with his desire with his design for a system that he thought would let police and only police decrypt phones and he was presenting it to groups small groups all over the country uh sophisticated people Mm -hmm. well-known cryptographers. I was in two of these meetings. The first one, I didn't spot anything. The second time I was in, another cryptographer found a flaw in 15 minutes. No. He'd been doing this for a year. Well-known, you know, brand-name cryptographers didn't spot it. This other guy spotted it within 15 minutes. This stuff is fiendishly hard to get right. Mm -hmm. And he he didn't. He yeah. tried and failed. And uh, yeah, that's the problem. Yes. What is your assurance you've gotten it right? It's a really subtle field. Oh, yeah. The complexity there is so great. So uh, when we're coming up to a break right now. And when we come back, well, I want to get into a few other issues, too. Um, now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today about encryption with Dr. Stephen Bellavan, multi-award-winning security and cryptography expert, owning many patents on cryptographic and network protocols. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these messages from my sponsors. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. 
the Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics, not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today about encryption with Dr. Stephen Bellavin, multi-award winning security and cryptography expert, owning many patents on cryptographic and network protocols. And we've been talking about, you know, some recent news and comments about privacy. I want to now get into some more philosophical, I guess you could say, uh, questions or even like bordering on advice, perhaps, to those who want to have backdoors into it. So, uh, Dr. Bellavin, what do you think? Should law enforcement and government embrace and encourage strong use of encryption instead of continuously fighting against it if uh, we were in an ideal world? And if yes, why? And if no, why not? Absolutely, they should embrace it. It's not a question of of individual privacy or individual security versus law enforcement. It's security versus security. Encryption is protecting us. Encryption, you know, when you have your phone being strongly encrypted, it's a way to protect the passwords, the cryptographic secrets that you use to log in. Mm-hmm. When I connect, when I want to go connect to uh, my cam- some of my campus facilities, I need a secret that's in my phone. Mm-hmm. When I'm logging in to look at student records to enter grades, back when I was at Bell Labs or AT&T Labs doing corporate things, especially when I was out of the country, I really wanted a strong protection mm-hmm. against anybody. It's you know it's a you know, I saw a news story the other day about thieves stealing phones not for the street value of the phone, but for the i uh, the bank account details oh. that were accessible through that phone. Encryption is guarding us. It's protecting all of us from criminals, from intelligence agencies. It's security, not uh, security versus security, not security against law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Well, the FBI, the FBI et cetera, role, they want to prevent crime. This is a way to prevent crime, too. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me that so many think that, well, 
you know, giving back doors, they're only going to do the right thing. But nobody talks about the fact that even mistakes lead to some pretty bad security uh, incidents and, and privacy issues. And I don't know if you have those back doors, how many how many people have access to the back door and how easy is it for them to make a mistake and accidentally send out, uh, you know, the the unencrypted data that they got into to someone that uh, causes a, a lot of harm. Exactly. You, know, you look at some of the recent ransomware incidents. It's not just ransomware. It's we're going to steal your data and publish it to the world to embarrass you if you don't pay us. Mm -hmm. The District of Columbia Police Department is being hit with that right now. Mm -hmm. Data is being dribbled out about some of their policies. What if it's some of their informants? I don't know what all the uh, attackers have gotten. You look at some of the uh, corporate databases that have been stolen that were not well protected uh, by encryption. Now, it's hard to protect an online database, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, well, Think about laptops that are stolen. Some years ago, the CEO of Qualcomm had his laptop stolen from a press event. Every corporate secret that Qualcomm had was on that laptop. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> even, I don't know if you recall, it's been several years ago back when Blackberries were all the rage, but I remember someone uh, purchased a Blackberry for $5.00. Um, on eBay, uh, and when they got it, it was full of a CEO. I don't know. I think it was a different company than what you're talking about, but it was a, a CEO of a, a large organization, and it had it didn't have like a lot of secrets, but it had all of the contact information for everybody the CEO spoke with, and that right there is pretty valuable in and of itself. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, someone I know bought a whole pile of used discs on eBay and scanned them and found credit card numbers, social security numbers, medical records, all kinds of stuff, private mm. stuff. Yes. These discs weren't encrypted. Encryption can prevent so many things that people can't even anticipate until after the fact of, uh, of an incident happening. Um, in your view, uh, Getting back to philosophy again, if we could not use strong encryption, and I know, you know, in some countries, I think that's the case, can't use strong encryption. What do you foresee or, or can you even foresee maybe the change in the number and, and the types of privacy breaches and security incidents? Well, again, you can't just open the door to your local law-abiding police officers. If there is a weakness in the exceptional access system, you don't know who's going to walk in, mm -hmm. whether it's by bribery, extortion of the local law-abiding police officers, or by a technical flaw in the exceptional access mechanism itself. You have created a weakness. Cryptography is designed that... Uh, protect things strongly between, say, two parties, and now you suddenly want to let in a third. And cryptography is hard enough to get right to start with. Letting in a third party under only, only under certain circumstances 
is a much, much harder problem. And then you've got to say, how do you know who this third party is? Now, imagine a nasty government. Mm-hmm. I pick your own favorite nasty government <laughs> coming to Apple or Google and, or, and saying, we've intercepted this conversation from one of your phones decrypted for, uh, for us. It's a terrorist. It's a child pornographer. Well, no one likes terrorists. No one likes child pornographers. Do they decrypt it? Or do they say, uh, how do we know this is really where it's from? And the nasty government says, trust us. Is it a legitimate business executive? Is it a dissident, a human rights worker? You have no way of telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that alone gets to be a problem. Or here is a lawfully seized phone, but lawfully seized according to whose laws. Mm-hmm. The international dimension makes this very much more difficult because different countries have very different legal standards on when police, when intelligence agencies are allowed to get at content, get at devices. And some you will trust and some you will not. Yes. You know, Dr. Belovid, I'm so impressed with you have all you have patents in uh, cryptographic protocols. And and while we've been talking, you've talked about how complex it is to create um, encryption that's strong, um, breakable, that works correctly. I think from what I hear of so many folks, I don't think they realize that because I hear people saying, well, this can be done. It's just that the tech people don't want to do it. But of course it can be done, but they don't have a background in, you know, in IT, let alone in cryptography. I mean, maybe how would you explain to folks, to our listeners, why it is so complex. It's not just like you're sitting down and, and writing a, a, you know, a program just off the top of your head, right? I'll give two examples, one uh, from my own experience and one historical one. From my own experience, actually, I think it's my first patent, by, it's still my favorite one, is for a cryptographic protocol designed to uh, to secure communications when all you had was something very weak like a password. Mm. And I came up with I came up with the idea while well, sitting in a really boring lecture one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, if you're in a boring lecture, don't go on Twitter or Facebook. Try and invent something, right? Uh, I always tell that story to my class. The uh, and when we wrote. When my co-author and I wrote the paper, we said, here's the original mechanism, here's the original mechanism, and by the way, here are several more variants of the original mechanism that might be better under certain circumstances. And within about two or three years, all but the very first had been broken. Mm-hmm. We thought highly of it, highly enough of the design that were willing to publish it. The referees, it was peer-reviewed, thought this is really cool, they were willing to accept it. And within a few years, all but the very first was broken. So, yeah, we're, we're professionals at it. We could get it completely right. We got part of it right, but not most of it. The historical example, this one's pretty well known, the uh, story of the German Enigma machine. 
mm-hmm. that they used uh, German military used during World War Two, and there were a whole host of reasons why first the Poles and the British and the Americans were able to break it, but part of the problem was an error in the usage instructions. There were three characters that you're supposed to pick that were random, and you're supposed to encrypt them twice. Mm. And it turned out that encrypting them twice gave away the wiring of the internals of the machine. And that was, they didn't realize that. That by taking this precaution, encrypting it twice against a communication error, one of the letters wasn't being transmitted correctly or something. They didn't realize that they were giving away one of the secrets of the machine. It just, uh, in many other usage errors, but I, I, I like this encrypting things twice one because mm-hmm. this, these were the official instructions, yeah. not people not following the instructions. These are the best cryptographers that Nazi Germany had said, do it this way. And it was wrong. And it was wrong because of a design flaw that they had not maybe considered uh, the context within which. Yes, exactly. Or there's another story. A cryptographer at Bletchley Park was staring at a message. Now, Bletchley Park, the way Bletchley Park worked, it wasn't magic. You didn't just feed a message in and get the answer out. You had to guess at a phrase that was going to be in the message and then set up the machines. And that would give you the key of the day to let you decrypt everything. And nothing was working. And mm-hmm. she noticed an oddity. The letter L did not appear in the message. Well, one of the design peculiarities of Enigma was that it could never encrypt a letter to itself. So she had a guess. I bet this was just a dummy message sent to confuse us of only the letter L. Let's put in lots of letter L's into our machine and see if that works. And it did, and it gave away the key of the day. Mm. Again, it's, that was a design flaw, feature, what have you, of the Enigma that a letter could never be encrypted to itself. It's hard to get these things right. And that it's hard. I think, you know, as you were describing it before, it sounds like because of the context within which the circumstances and the types of systems um, that are used maybe that are different, maybe the differences between the systems and and all those things, all of those factors impact cryptography, right? Exactly. Security is a systems property. It's not just here is an algorithm. It's how you use the algorithm and what the endpoints are like. It's what... It's how it's presented to the user and more. And any and all of these things can get it wrong. And uh, you're trying to add another access mechanism. Mm-hmm. How is that done technically, procedurally, legally? How do you verify a warrant? Your Apple, your Google, your whomever. You get a wiretap request from some constable in some town that you've never heard of, how do you authenticate that request? Yes. That, that just becomes a part. Could that part of it be soft? Probably. 
But there are so many other moving parts. It's all part of the system. And I don't think a lot of people who say, well, it should be, you know, doable, if not easy, to build these back doors, I don't think they realize that it's different in so many different situations for how cryptography works. And when you were talking about like your first one that that was your favorite and then you had the different variations and those were broken, but you still had your original, were when you were thinking about those and building them, were you considering like the types of computer systems that they would be running on? Were you considering things like the length of the um, of the message in addition to the length of the key and all that? I mean, those are some of the variables that are involved, all, correct? All kind, all kinds of different variables in there. You know, one of the things that we did think about, and it turns out we got it almost right, but not quite right. We said, okay, you, you're going to pick a random number, and it's going to have to be a integral number of bytes. Uh, but what if it's not an integral number of bytes? What if it comes out a few bits short? Well, that's going to leak information. And leaking information, you get a couple of dozen uh, intercepts, and it's going to completely ruin the protocol. And that one we thought we got right. That was we got closer on that one, but uh, it's these fine little details. When I yeah. scroll it down the blackboard, I say encrypt this, but that's not the way encryption works in the real world. Mm-hmm. You've got to do it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. You almost have to think. Um like three or four dimensionally, don't you? In order to kind of foresee what, uh, how your 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 uh, your encryption solution is going to be used. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the again. It's uh, it's a systems property. It's the it's the basic algorithm. It's the engineering of the algorithm. It's the endpoints. It's the users. It's the usage scenario. It's the so-called UX, the user experience. All of this goes into the security of a system. And when you're talking about leaking data for our listeners, is that uh, data that might be discoverable in such things as like the metadata of an encrypted file? Or what? where are you finding that leaked data that gives these clues that allows you to decrypt the well. This this specific one was a little bit different. We were uh, uh, trying to prevent password guessing and if using a password to encrypt a conversation, mm-hmm. and how and we wanted to make it impossible for someone to validate a guess at the password. Well, it turned out that uh, if you didn't get this aspect right, it you couldn't validate the guess immediately. But you could rule out half of your possible you know, a million entry dictionary. You could rule out a half a million each time. Mm. And that's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, we you, each time you're cutting each time. it half. Each time you each conversation you get to you get to cut the possible guesses in half. It doesn't take very many guesses. Very many cutting it in half. That you only have one guess left, and then you and then you can solve. Then you know the password. 
I think what you're describing, too, is another important point for those folks who kind of think that it's just like opening a door to seeing clear text data. When you're talking about decryption or breaking uh, encryption, it's an iterative process, right? It's not like all at once. It's an iterative process. Any modern algorithm, the... uh it's not going to break completely. It's not going to shatter. It's you're going to re, so-called reduce the work factor that it takes to actually get the answer. You know, so Bletchley Park attacking Enigma, they could reduce the search space enough that it was possible to exhaust it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things, fine. Maybe I've got a 128-bit key. If I can reduce it by 60 bits. Well, then I've got a 68-bit key. That's probably that may be within reach of brute force, certainly for an intelligence agency. Mm-hmm. So, it's a question of what is the economics of breaking the system. Someone I know points out that uh, you know, there's an old saying by Napoleon that uh, amateurs worry about uh, tactics, pros worry about logistics. He applied it to encryption. Uh, amateurs worry about algorithms, pros worry about the economics. What does it cost to break the system? Mm. There's a Supreme Court case not all that many years ago where Justice Sotomayor observed that the real check on police misbehavior was not the courts, but community reaction and resources. What did it cost them to misbehave? If it's really cheap to spy on people and no one's going to notice, there might be more of that, according to Justice Sotomayor. And you apply that to cryptography. The goal is to make it too expensive for somebody to crack. Yes. Yes, and engage and use those other tactics that can get you demonstrably with recent examples the information that you're looking for. Exactly. You want to make it too expensive for the attackers to crack the system. When you start adding these back doors, you've you've certainly made it less expensive for the local authorized police, but you also made it less expensive, maybe a lot less expensive for people you're that you and the local authorized police are trying to keep out. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, this is, I think this has been very helpful discussion. I know that uh, I learned a lot and made me think about things that I haven't been thinking about before through your examples. And it's interesting because uh, in the past few weeks, why in some of these other online activities, there they, there was a team that's producing a framework that they're calling it a framework to provide to policymakers that is about weakening um, encryption. So they they were even looking at the pros and cons. But I think what you describe should help them out a lot. But as we're coming down to uh, the end of the show here, I guess for my last question in maybe one to two minutes, what is the key point or key lesson that you want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? 
Encryption is a very fragile technology. If done properly, it's the st- one of the strongest mechanisms we have for computer and communications security. But trying to weaken it is a very risky business because you don't know that you've weakened it correctly and you don't know for whom you've left open the door. It's, a, it's again, it is not security versus law enforcement. It's security versus security. The strong encryption is preventing crimes. Maybe it hinders law enforcement sometimes. You know, I don't mind. Law enforcement has shown an ability to hack into phones with uh, devices from Grayshift and Celebrite and more. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's fine. I don't mind that it's a bit expensive. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. one of the checks on law enforcement misbehavior. But yeah. by the same token, it's also by by not weakening encryption, we're keeping out others. We are pre- we are preventing other crimes, and that's a very important lesson to remember. Strong yeah. encryption is preventing crime. It's maybe it hinders law enforcement, maybe not. You mentioned metadata. We don't have time to talk about it, but metadata is extraordinarily valuable to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But they're still able to. Pre- we st- they're still interested in preventing crimes as well. Yes, I think that's very important and great, uh, a great thing for our listeners to go out of our discussion today. Thank you so much for being my show, uh, Dr. Belvin. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Great. Today, I've been speaking about encryption with Dr. Stephen Belvin, multi-award winning security and cryptography expert, owning many patents on cryptographic and network protocols. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Well, let me know. And do you have other topics to suggest that I cover? Let me know that too. You can always contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, if you can't make our our scheduled debut show, which is on the first Saturday of each month, why you will be able to listen to all the recordings and you can find recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and whatever your favorite news app is. And then, of course, on the voiceamerica.com business channel. Uh, Contact me with any questions you have as well. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Ask them about encryption. Are they encrypting your data? Uh, Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.